0: one of the other interesting things about Europe is that because you're doing this through the medical regulations and like, so what happens is like, so a company that goes here and that starts to grow and has this manufacturing, like they are wholesaling narcotics. Like it's all through because it stays in the traditional pharmaceutical and cannabis is still a scheduled narcotics. So they're dealing with narcotics, but it allows them to import and export. Okay? So goods can move freely within the European Union.
1: You're listening to, to be blunt, The Podcast for Cannabis Marketers. Where your host Shada Tarabi and her guests are trailblazing the path to marketing, educating, and professionalizing cannabis. Light one up and listen up. Here's your host, Shada Tarabi. Hello, my friends, and welcome back to another episode of the To Be Blunt podcast. My name is Shada Tarabi, I am your host. I'm a cannabis business owner, and a passionate brand marketer. And today's episode is really, really informative. I mean, we really touch on a lot of things that I just really don't think that people operating in the general American cannabis market really have heard about or have connections to discuss very frequently. So super honored and grateful to have Stephen George on the podcast today. My guest is Stephen George. He has been involved with the cannabis industry for the past 10 years. He got started with medical cannabis cultivation back in 2010 in his home state of Michigan. Then in 2017, he moved to Portugal and soon after entered the medical cannabis industry in Europe, working with Tilray, one of the largest European cannabis operators as a country manager of Portugal and Spain. And then he finished up his time with that company as a European alliance manager. Then in July of 2021, Stephen left Tilray to launch his own firm, Kaya Advisors, which specializes in cannabis commercial strategy and advice. So there's a lot to unpack in Stephen's bio. Primarily, we are going to focus today's episode on talking about really what's going on in Europe, what is going on in medical cannabis from Europe compared to the United States, We touch on kind of the differences between the two markets from a hemp perspective as well, but really a lot of focus, just understanding and getting some good insight into how the laws are set up in Europe. And quick little like heads up, it's really interesting for those of us in America who are kind of looking towards federal legalization and how that will affect and really, I guess, how that will impact interstate commerce. And Stephen shares kind of what's going on right now in Europe. And I just think it's really good information for those of us who are building cannabis businesses and brands and how do we navigate that, especially as we not only inch towards federal legalization, but really towards global access to cannabis. So without further ado, let's welcome Stephen to the To Be Blunt Show.
0: I'm Steve George, originally from Michigan, but living in Lisbon, Portugal. And I'm the recent founder of Kaya Advisors, which is an advisory firm that I've created here in Europe to help connect cannabis companies with patients and consumers as the market develops out here in Europe. But if you can tell from my voice, I am not from Europe and I have an American accent and that's actually where I'm originally from. So I grew up in the state of Michigan which is also where my cannabis journey began, if you will, because we were one of the earlier states to move on the medical cannabis program back in 2008. And this is where I first kind of got more involved and started out my young cannabis career in cultivation. And I was actually supplying some of the local dispensaries in my university town of Kalamazoo, Michigan, And this is also at the same time when I started to understand more beyond the plant than what I heard in music and just more of a recreational use, but to also start to understand the medical values of cannabis as well. And then after that, so I ended up graduating in 2011 and had a degree in finance. So I chased the financial career and kind of left the cannabis behind for a bit and moved down to Tennessee and worked in the finance industry. It was doing financial sales. And this is where I really built a strong corporate career. But it was also an industry in and situation that I didn't find full fulfillment in. So I actually decided to go back to school and I did that to get an MBA, which I actually ended up doing in Port of All Places. And then after the MBA, I decided to stick around. And ironically, at that same time, Medical cannabis was starting to gain a bit more traction. So this was 2017. Was starting to gain a bit more traction. This was when Germany started to make some changes, and one of the larger companies that I previously worked for, Tilray, was building out a large facility here in Portugal, and that's where I got started and spent the last three and a half years before founding Kai Advisors, working with them.
1: That's so like incredible and fascinating, and also. I think so much like unknown, especially to those of us operating in, I think, the United States cannabis market, right? Like the US cannabis market is still super unknown and very slow paced depending on what market you're in. I'm in Texas and we just barely have medical cannabis. We're definitely trying to fight for, I think, broadening medical cannabis before we can even get to recreation. So that understanding paired with like, wow, even thinking about cannabis at a global level is just something that I don't think a lot of us talk about, which is... I am excited to have you on the podcast to kind of help shed some light into not only your background and obviously through the journey that you've been through just being a part of the industry in that regard, but also to help kind of explain to us kind of what's going on overseas. And so if we can start there, kind of help us understand both from your knowledge operating in Michigan and Tennessee to now Portugal and really Europe what is medical cannabis like? Maybe it's even what is cannabis like overseas in Europe in general? And how does that maybe compare to the US market? Because you know, maybe I'll shoot a shot in the dark. I don't know if legalization in the United States at a federal level is coming anytime soon. Some say sooner than later. I don't know, I'm a Texan. I'm a little skeptical just because our state's a little slow. But when you then kind of, again, step back and think of, A world where everybody has access to cannabis on planet Earth, that just seems like so far fetched to me. And so when you're saying Germany and Portugal and Tilray, obviously being a really major player in European cannabis, it's just, it's stuff that I don't really see or hear a lot about. And so it's a little unknown. I didn't even know that there was medical cannabis in Europe. And so again, kind of help paint that picture of what is cannabis like? And then maybe how does that compare from Europe to the United States?
0: For sure. No, I think it's a great question. I think it's a great bit of information for the listeners as well, because it's quite different, right? And if we st- take a step back and just think of cannabis in general first, then things are quite similar, okay? And I think when you look at consumption levels here in Europe, very similar. You see 5 to 10% of populations consuming regularly, right? Doesn't matter if it's Northern Europe, Southern Europe, you see those numbers pretty much across the board. Now, some consume a bit more than others, but it's quite, like I said, steady across the board in that sense. Now, one thing that I noticed when I moved out here originally is that they consume a lot more hash, okay, than they do dried flour. And now, the dried flour, there's still a lot of consumption. You still see it around regularly. But hash, this was something that was just, I don't know, I always mention it because it was something that stuck with me. But then if you look at R.I.P. Frenchie, but then, you know, coming from Europe as well and always the big hash guy, it started, you kind of connected the dots, right? And realized that. So then when I looked into it a little more, what you found is a lot of this hash is produced in Morocco, which is northern Africa. And if you look at the map, you know, northern Africa and the south of Spain are very, very close. I mean, it's only... I think 100 kilometers or so to make it from continent to continent. So a lot of this hash moves up from, illicitly moves up from Northern Africa, from Morocco, and then comes in through Spain and then disperses its way through the rest of Europe. But you see really high consumption numbers in both France and Spain, and also in some of the other countries as well. But when it comes to The general cannabis things quite similar. Only thing is when it comes to what you're seeing now because of the advancements in the U.S., both medically and recreationally, there's a lot more form factors available in the U.S., even in the illicit market, right? You have edibles and vapes and all kinds of different things where you don't really see those over here, okay? You see dried flower and you see hash when it comes to the more illicit market because there is no recreational market in Europe. So that's the first thing to kind of put out there is that there is no active recreational or adult use market in Europe today. Now there are countries talking about it, but we'll get to that a little bit later. The major difference I think to highlight is just the medical programs in general here in Europe. So what's going on is that in every country it's actually the local health regulator who is putting through the regulation. So at the European level, they've only approved Sativex and Epidolics. So Sativex and Epidolics from GW Pharmacies are approved at the EU level, which is the same kind of federal level we would look like in the U.S., right? But then when you dive into the country level, it's different country by country, Similar to it is different state by state. But one thing that's similar across all countries is that it's all dealt with by the local health regulator and everything is following the traditional pharmaceutical pathway, if you will. And what I mean by that specifically is that you're getting doctors are writing prescriptions basically per unit. Just like any other prescription medicine that you're used to. It's not an annual certification or an annual recommendation. It is a prescription medicine. For example, here in Portugal, the doctors are using the same software that they use to prescribe any other prescription medicine. And they have an option for cannabis, right? So it's implemented into their traditional system and by prescription every time. That is the one major difference. The second major difference that I see here in Europe is that then all cannabis or medicinal cannabis is dispensed through the pharmacy. So this is the same pharmacy that patients are going for any other prescription medicine or over-the-counter medicine that they would be looking for, but it's being dispensed in the pharmacy. So I think they're just two huge differences that we see from the U.S. model like I said, both with the per prescription and being through pharmacy. And, and for me, it's something that I think is really great for the industry, right? Because I think it legitimizes cannabis as a medicine, right? And not trying to beat around the bush or that the medicinal is just a pathway to the recreational or adult use. It is actually being looked at, As a medicine. And just yesterday, I put out something on LinkedIn that was actually about Germany, because Germany actually has public insurers reimbursing medical cannabis. So patients are actually going and getting dried cannabis flowers reimbursed by public insurance, right? Which I think is exactly what should be happening, right? If it's a medicine and it's providing help to individuals for specific indications and other medications that are helping with those same indications are being reimbursed, then why not, why not cannabis as well?
1: You said it just to clarify, it's just flour, right? Are they able to get hash as well, but there's no gummies, there's no tinctures or topicals. It's, it sounds like it's just flour as the, the legal medical function of cannabis.
0: So it's quite open, actually, but what you see on the market so far are flowers and oils or tinctures, right, that are orally taken. Now, there's other companies that are still working on also other sublinguals, and and actually in the German market, the SKUs continue to expand, so I'm not even fully up to speed today on the present of what's available, and there might even be some new stuff that is outside. Of oils and you know more pharmaceutical pill or dried flour, but when it comes to you know hash edibles or like having something like a vape pen available, that has not made it into the medical arena yet let's say
1: No got it. that's so interesting because I think at a national or federal level in the United States, medical cannabis does have more liberties or more form factors and obviously more conditions that it qualifies for depending on what state has legalized. So California, Colorado being some of the leaders in the United States. The rec market has the same access as the medical market in terms of types of products and accessibility, but obviously like you highlighted difference in where you go. You're going to a traditional kind of dispensary versus actually going to a pharmacy that is dispensing other drugs and using cannabis as one of those but in texas i don't know if you know much about texas and so this is just you know maybe for the listeners too who are tuning in from across the world let's say who aren't aware texas it's really interesting our medical market right now just hearing you say you know one of the predominant ways and and i know this too from a bioavailability perspective like smoking is one of the best ways to consume cannabis to feel the effects it's fast it's consistent in that regard But in Texas, smoking is actually not one of the form factors that is legal for our medical program. They are very limited. We're also limited by dose, but it is something that it just fascinates me. Like what All these other markets have shown that smoking cannabis is and has medicinal merit to it, but yet our market is like, no, we're going to give you edibles and we'll give you tinctures and we'll give you topicals, but they're kind of restrained in that regard. And so I guess a follow-up too is, are there any limitations in terms of dosing or conditions when it comes to Europe versus the United States? Or is it very kind of similar in terms of its cap to some extent or like from a medical perspective, especially since I know that's obviously your background and your passion as well of seeing cannabis be accessible for people who do have these debilitating medical ailments and diseases and wanting to be able to use cannabis for it. Just, I guess, how is that seen? Because to contrast that, and no shade to any US state that is operating medically, but like Oklahoma, for a good example, they're the wild, wild West. They're completely open in terms of quote unquote medical marijuana, but the conditions list is so easy to qualify for. I've heard, you know, doctors, you don't even have to go in and physically see a doctor anymore. You can just tell a medicine, a doctor, and then they'll write you a prescription and then you can kind of have access to cannabis. So To me, it's blurring and blending the lines of medicine versus people who recreationally want to consume. And again, I'm not here to point fingers or say you shouldn't be doing anything like that, but it is a really interesting conversation when it seems like you really do view cannabis as medicinal, but then there's definitely some obvious liberties that are taken in certain states, let's say in the United States, to again, blur the lines of what is actually medicine and how do people actually qualify for that and how much can they actually receive as part of their quote unquote prescription.
0: Yeah, no, exactly. I mean, you make great point because Michigan was more, like I said, I don't know if they've m- updates they've made since I left and, but now they're adult use. So I'm sure they don't much focus there, but the same thing was in Michigan. I mean, when I got the certification back in 2010, I mean, there was no indications. There was no, I mean, yeah, you were supposed to have a precondition. But there was no specific indications. There was no limitation on form factors or whatever. You know, you went to the dispensary and what the dispensary had was available, right? But then when you look at Europe, it changes based on countries. So it's similar to what you see in the States. It just depends on what country you're in. For example, in Portugal, there's seven indications, okay, that they list are, that can be prescribed for for. So that's how Portugal is doing it, right? And these seven indications are outlined there. But then they also go on as far as to say that the physicians can write off-label. And off-label means basically they can write for whatever reason they deem necessary. So that kind of opens up the door. Where in other countries, there's countries that don't have indication specific at all. So it's pretty wide open to what the physician deems as necessary. Right now, I think one of the interesting things you mentioned even before that was the inhalation. Right. And that's the thing, too, is like with a lot of the companies that are over here working in the medical arena or industry or medical cannabis industry, the teams have pharmaceutical backgrounds. And so they're very aware and knowledgeable on the pharmaceutical. Network and drug delivery and, and different healthcare related things. And I'm no healthcare professional at all, but I learned a tremendous amount by being surrounded by healthcare professionals with my previous employer the whole time I was there, right? And even having a, a medical department. And this is where we could start to look into some of that stuff. And it's the exact point to what you make. When you inhale cannabis, it titrates up very quickly. And there's not many things that a doctor has access to especially when you're looking at things like acute pain and stuff that comes on right away and you need an instant solution for a lot of the medication without going direct injection into the bloodstream you can't get there right even with any pills it's still going to take some time to get into the bloodstream and get activated so the inhalation and I've spoken with a key opinion leader in Spain physician who told me to my face in a meeting that said she goes. I have nothing else that can do what this can. So it's a new tool for them as well, right? That they don't have before. And I think it's quite interesting. And to the Texas regulators, what I would even go on and further to advise is, what's interesting is that so the volcano. I don't. Know, are you aware of the volcano? And you know. Oh, the- I have one. <laughs> all right. All right. And see, one of my friends growing up had a volcano. And what many people don't know is that on Storks and Brickles website. The Volcano and the Mighty Medic are medical devices, medical devices. They are the only registered medical devices in Europe. And obviously they were smart to jump on the bid and get ahead of that a little bit early, but they are registered medical devices. So I think that right there in itself shows that hey inhalation is a legitimate way to deliver this medicine. Vaporization is probably the better way to go and that's why there's medical devices approved for that route of administration. But yeah, I mean I think inhalation is an extremely important part and again a tool that physicians depending on the indication they need and it can be very helpful.
1: That's so fascinating. I mean, I think what Storz and Bickel is a German-based company, right? correct. So obviously European founded, but I didn't pick up on that notion that they were actually classified as a medical device and it obviously does go in line with what you're sharing in terms of and It's really cool to hear that one of these medical professionals in Spain even acknowledge that. This is a very fast way for people with certain ailments or conditions to find relief in a quick effect and there is I believe medical merit to that, but obviously it gets diluted I think depending on what market and who's saying it and whose opinion and blah, 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 all these other aspects of it. Now, what I'm kind of curious to get a better understanding from you. So knowing that Europe is mostly actually totally medical, like from a legal perspective, and it's legalizing country by country, are the countries the ones then who are like, again, my knowledge from medical is closely mostly what's happening in Texas. And so we have licensing and people had to go get The bids for the licenses, and Texas only issued so many licenses. Let's say Portugal, where you're, you know, living in, and where Tilray obviously had or still has a place with the country, a facility, rather. To say, are they connected to the country? Do they have to apply for a bid to have a license to operate legally in Portugal? Is there limited licensure? Like, what is that relationship between the government? and these operators and maybe kind of overlapping that with what we have in America, which is, you know, multi-state operators. So you're seeing a lot of people who are maybe setting up in one state and then they're able to replicate that state to state. And so you're seeing some, I don't want to call it a corporation, but you know, they're, they're building these large businesses that are helping drive the industry forward. Is that equally happening in Europe? And to what extent is that process for people to, be a part of the medical industry? Like, for example, if I move to Portugal, could I apply for a license and, you know, qualify to grow cannabis and then have my cannabis be used by these pharmacists and these doctors? Or is it a much higher barrier to entry to operate in the EU cannabis market?
0: No, it's a great question. And it's a kind of a yes and a no, a yes and a no question. Because yes, there is licensing processes in most of the countries. Now, we're still going to see kind of how this unfolds, but initially, Tilray was one of the first companies that was out here building a large-scale facility, and it happened to be in Portugal, okay? Now, Portugal is in the south of Europe, so we do get a lot of sun. We're 300 days of sun. It's fairly warm in the summers, mild winters, so it's a good place. Also attractive from a labor standpoint as well, So it was clear kind of why someone would choose this country. But then Spain's next door is very similar, right? And we've seen a lot more attention here in Portugal. And it's hard to tell like why that was. It might have just been because Tilray came here first. Literally, that might be just that simple. And then people are like, okay, we need to grow in Portugal. It's the thing to do. So we've seen a lot in here in Portugal. And again, yes, the process is anyone could come here and you can establish a company and they have some requirements, but then you can apply for the license. The fee actually applies is quite affordable. And then people could, then it's up to you, you know, like there's groups here that are only cultivating, right? So their idea would then be to, they don't want to manufacture anything. So they're growing to then sell to one of these groups that want to manufacture the product and actually commercialize it, right? Because that is the one part that gets a bit stricter is that there's like an EU GMP, okay? I don't know if you've heard this around, but it's like good manufacturing practices, but the EU has their own specifications for this EU GMP. And to manufacture pharmaceutical drugs, you need to be EU GMP certified. So this then gets a little bit more bureaucratic and obviously is ex- expensive, you know, to build these facilities and do that processing it's pharmaceutical manufacturing, right? So it's an expensive area, which does pose a bit of a barrier to entry for smaller players. But on the cultivation side, I think it's very open and you have some bootstrapped groups here that got licenses, right? That are able to cultivate and they're able to, we'll have to wait and see how they do, but I'm glad that they're able to participate and they're able to compete and they're here. It's one of the reasons why I also opened the advisory firm to try to help some of these smaller groups, right, with the knowledge that I have to help them compete with the bigger groups out there. So you definitely see the differences when it comes to licensing, but everyone is allowed to do that. And it looks a little bit different country to country. And I think you're seeing more down south because most are being, it's greenhouse. And so they're trying to use the natural light and it's the, and like I said, because of other things like labor. So then if you go to Germany, you're going to need to build an indoor facility. Labor is much more expensive, et cetera, et cetera. Your cost of production and everything increases quite a bit. So that's why I think you've seen more traction down here in the south of Europe. Now, the super interesting thing or not, you know, one of the other interesting things about Europe is that because you're doing this through the medical regulations, And like, so what happens is like, so a company that goes here and that starts to grow and has this manufacturing, like they are wholesaling narcotics. Like it's all through, you know, because it stays in the traditional pharmaceutical and cannabis is still a scheduled narcotics. So they're dealing with narcotics, but it allows them to import and export. Okay. So goods can move freely within the European Union, assuming the health, like, so what happens is, say I'm sitting here in Portugal and I want to sell some cannabis to Germany. Okay. Like I want to sell to a distributor. It doesn't even have to be my own company. I just want to sell to a distributor in Germany, who's then going to distribute to pharmacies in Germany. The German company would go to their local health regulator, assuming they had all the license and certifications, they would get an import permit so they would get an official import permit from the German health regulators for the amount that they're looking, you know, let's say 100 kilos, okay? So they're looking to import in 100 kilos of dried cannabis flour, okay? Then they're buying it from Portugal. Then that company in Portugal would take that import certificate, give it to their health regulator, and the health regulator here in Portugal would issue an export permit. And once you have that export and matching import permit, this product can then go on a plane and fly to Germany and land in Germany and then be distributed in Germany with you know, without the company selling here in Portugal, having any establishment or facility or company in the country that they then sold to. So you could work with partners and other distributors to move things around. So it's definitely a big difference. And it's funny you brought that up because it was a question that I've as I've worked over here the last few years and been in this industry and I've had people from North America come over and visit and obviously things are continuing to progress in the U.S. and I say I always ask them you know I'm like what do you think you know after seeing things over here like because my biggest concern being here is that because there's no adult use and things are moving a bit more slower that like am I making a mistake because I'm here and I'm not And back home, I could be more involved or I could be growing at home and doing more of my own R&D things or whatever, right? Like, am I just like missing something because I'm here? And then oftentimes what I've heard as feedback is like, yeah, you're missing things, but we're missing things that you're able to do over there. And you guys are actually like moving cannabis around like a global good. And one of the markets that opened up a lot over here is Israel. So Israel's also importing A lot of medical cannabis from European countries as well also with this same import export process so yeah i find it to be quite a big difference
1: hello just want to take a quick moment to thank my sponsor and full disclosure my company restart cbd Restart CBD is a brand that I built with my sister, so we are family-owned and women-owned. We do operate a brick and mortar in Austin, so if you ever find yourself in Central Texas, we'd love for you to come say hi. But we also ship nationwide, and we carry a wide range of CBD products. We really care about this plant. We really care about educating our customers. This show would not be possible without their support. So please go check us out at RestartCBD.com and use code blunt for $5 off your next purchase. Thanks, and let's go back to the show. Oh, it's so fascinating. I mean, that was going to be one of my questions. And then you said it, I was going to ask, can you leave the country and can you, I guess, transfer the goods from country to country? And so you articulated that very helpfully. That was just literally something I had no concept or knowledge about. And now my follow-up to you, I'm curious if you know, have an understanding and can share, because I do think from an American perspective, and it's also interesting that you shared your, I think just like truth in the sense that Now I'm in Europe. Am I missing what's going on in America? And I think as Americans, I'm like, okay, well, what's going on in Europe? And how does that impact each other's marketplace as we do go towards here in America, more national and obviously eventually global? But when we talk about in the United States opening up federal legalization, the word that gets thrown around a lot is interstate commerce. And I think that I've taken a role of caution, especially with this podcast. I've gotten to talk to so many incredible guests, like yourself included, who have just shared so transparently their truths. And it's just kind of put me in a position of also paying attention to the market, the signs, reading all these different reports, understanding that every state has legalized different. Even states that have legalized like California, you start to pick apart both from their medical transition into recreation, people who had their medical licenses, medical dispensaries, they weren't awarded the recreation dispensary license right away. There's not necessarily rhyme or reason sometimes. And so I think when you hear of companies like Amazon, where they're becoming more lenient with cannabis for their employees, then you think, well, Amazon is a mass distributor. You know, they ship me things in two days, love them or hate them. Like they've built this force that should we open up interstate commerce, it's rightfully, I think, an opinion to have, well, what does that do for the industry? Does that have space for smaller, I'm going to use the word kind of craft cultivators or craft businesses or craft brands to succeed and I think a lot of the feedback that I hear from outside of the industry is oh of course I mean you look at there's Miller and Corona and all these you know Bud Light Budweiser massive brands but then people still like to go to their small craft brews and support local and things like that but my fear my caution is always the barrier to entry if I today wanted to go open a brewery it's relatively easy for me to just go find a piece of land buy equipment Obviously, I have to have the science to know how to make beer, but there's nothing from a licensing perspective that is saying, well, there's only 10 licenses in Austin. So you have to get one of those 10 licenses. Otherwise, sorry, the door's shut. You can't open a brewery. But obviously, that's what's happening with cannabis. So I can't project what's going to happen in Texas. I can make some predictions, but (laughs) I don't know what's actually going to happen when the shoe hits. And then kind of you extrapolate that out to a federal level. I think there's just, again, some rightful caution around interstate commerce? And what's that going to do to the industry? And so to bring it back around to your point of view, it sounds like Europe has figured out a way to kind of open those doors. Do you see, let's say, countries like Portugal are doing more exporting than they are importing? It sounds like the price to operate is much more reasonable in countries like Portugal versus, let's say, countries like Germany. And so do you see Germany... As an example, there could be other countries where they're predominantly importing versus exporting and how that kind of has shaped the European market. And then kind of, you know, just would be curious your thoughts of what Europe is doing and how that relates to what America is potentially opening up with federal legalization and how this like global economy of transporting, importing, exporting, sharing, selling, consuming cannabis could play out from your expertise and perspective.
0: (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Like you said it it'll be interesting to see it all go down and I mean, and I totally understand where you're coming from as well when it comes to the interstate commerce and what that'll do and and like you know because like I said, I already know people push back a lot against even some of the multi state operators already right because they're i mean it's it's kind of the same thing in a sense right and then these are starting to be some of the bigger groups, and then obviously if there's a state or place that's limiting licenses. These are the ones with the big wallets and the big pockets and they tend to find a way. Right. So I definitely don't like that side of it. And I think there needs to be caution always when moving that way. And yeah, I mean, I don't know. It's, it's, it's really, it's tough. It's a great question. And I think it's tough to understand what the rules are. You know, I I think limiting the licenses especially to like small numbers, I think it's just not fair at all, right? I just don't think that's a good approach from a state level when, you know, I think Florida does something similar as well. And yeah, so I just think you have to let people compete, right? And that means you have to let the small compete as well. And because what you find with cannabis, you know, like I said, and the beer example is really good because, and I always sat there and I looked at it and I always, because I've tried to make this comparison before, you know, and I sat there and I thought like, Why did it take so long before the craft beer thing got like big, right? Like, what was it? What was it when everyone was like, "Ah, I'm sick of drinking Bud Light and this watered down beer and I can make something better? And what was it? And I know you had like some of the bigger, like the fat tires of the world that were like a little more crafty, but still kind of big. And that's like, I think those were some of the ones that started, but it was like, what really made that take off, you know, and from what you can see, it seems to be a sustainable model. So my question is, is like, and you're already seeing the craft cannabis, like the word and talked about a lot. Right. So it's like, then I start to question, like, maybe did we just skip that whole era? And now we're just going to like, Hey, there's going to be the big players, but there's also going to be the craft and they'll find their markets. And the big players are going to be that the cheaper, more cost-effective mass-produced, mediocre stuff but then if you're someone who wants that's willing to spend a little bit more that wants a great product that wants to be part of a community that wants to know where their products being produced and manufactured and the team etc then i think they can play as well you make a great point it's really in my more opinion it's more about it's that licensing process to let them play are you gonna let them play or are you not because i think when you do let them play Assuming you then don't adjust rules in favor of the bigger players, there's many great small cultivators, and I know there's consumers that want to be a part of something. And especially when I look deeper into the cannabis community and the people that I know, yes, you have the group that's always going to go for more maybe affordable options, but then I know a large part of that community is much more involved in what they want to consume and why they're consuming it and who's growing it and how it makes them feel. And so I'm optimistic about the ability for the small players to survive. But as I said, I really think it matters a lot about how they manage this licensing. And when you, if you do go to a federal level, what does that mean? Is there going to be amount of federal cultivation license? What do you do to the existing? I mean, it gets so confusing to me when I try to look at what the federal government's going to do now moving forward. Right. Because, yeah, I mean, you have so many licenses already in place and different regulations state to state. So I don't even know. Uh, how they, it's hard for me to even wrap my head around it. And, you know, like I said, and maybe it's easier to federally legalize, but then you leave it up to the states to operate individually. But then again, you know, that would still, I think, open up interstate commerce. So you would still have this thing to it. Here's what happened. You open up that, then it's going to come down to the states who were smart or, and who wasn't smart, because then The states with the limited licenses, if they're not producing good quality out of those limited licenses, then guess what they're going to start doing? Importing, right? They're going to start importing from other states, from people who are producing good quality cannabis and producing stuff that people want to consume. So the states that actually limit their licenses might end up hurting themselves in the long run when this actually goes more federal because... That's like what's going on in Portugal right now. You have, there's no limit really on the license and the government's kind of issuing. Now, we don't know if they'll stop at some point or or how that's going to play out, but it shows you that they're going to let everyone play. And if you can produce high quality cannabis and you have good branding and a marketing strategy behind it, then you can get into the market. For sure, and I think here it's still open. In, like you, you have a lot of big players, the Tilray's, the Canopies, the you know, or the Roars of the World that have been around here. But there's other small companies that are coming online now that are getting their flower into the German market. And it's because they're producing better quality than the bigger players.
1: Yeah, I mean, you hit the nail on the head. I share the same sentiment. It's something that I often reflect and talk about as well in terms of. Just because you can grow, let's say in Texas, doesn't mean the quality of what we're growing is quality, right? And so I think that is something for people just to be mindful of in terms of like, yes, these markets are isolated right now. But as you do open up interstate commerce, I mean, don't quote me on this, but I think I read something somewhere that said if we opened up interstate commerce, essentially all cannabis that's being consumed today could be grown in the state of Idaho, in the United States, could be grown in the state of Idaho, and it would supply the whole United States. And so you really start thinking, and especially reflecting on, I think the hemp market as well, that market's gone through so many roller coasters of there wasn't enough, then there was a surplus. And so you're kind of watching that, I think, in parallel to... Projecting or trying to project what could happen when you do open up interstate commerce. And so, maybe in a weird way, I just presented myself an interesting idea to resonate on a little bit more offline of, okay, we kind of have interstate commerce with hemp. How is that going? (laughs) You know, and obviously some players are doing it better than others. And so, like, even for us in our retail here in Austin, Mm
0: -hmm. we got a lot of
1: Texas farmers who were calling saying, Hey, I grew for the first time because Texas legalized in 2019. So, crops were coming kind of on the market, I would say like 2019, 2020. And I was getting a lot of calls just being a dispensary owner. Hey, I have this flower. I'm growing it in state. Do you want it? And my answer, you know, unfortunately is like, oh, this was your first time growing cannabis. I don't care you grow outdoor, indoor. It still wasn't quality. And that's not to say that there isn't some good stuff being grown in Texas. But again, the market has to kind of like learn The cultivar, you know, varies the quality of flower. The soil varies the quality of flower. The geography, Mm -hmm. indoor versus outdoor, like there's obviously so many variabilities. And I often also reflect on like orange juice. I love orange juice. I just had a nice big glass this morning. Just because you can grow oranges in Texas doesn't mean those oranges are going to be the same quality as Florida oranges. You know, it's the sunshine, it's the soil, it's whatever, and so I have to kind of take that into account, too, as I navigate cannabis thinking just because we can do something doesn't mean that that's going to be the future opportunity for that state. And so it's just interesting, again, being in Texas where you're kind of watching all of our peer states legalize in different degrees. Florida, like you highlighted, very limited licensure. Oklahoma is a free-for-all Arizona went medical to rec really quick. And then you have New York State, and New Jersey, which legalized around the same time, but their programs don't actually open recreation until 2023, 2024. So there's a lot of disparity in the market in terms of, well, how's it going to play out, you know? And so I think that's where I try to exist is not to assume anything, but to really just try to study everything that's happening around me to make the best educated strategy to kind of move forward. And so kind of with that conversation around hemp a little bit, I am curious, knowing that it's more adopted in the United States than ever before, even from our dispensary perspective. you know, I ship nationwide and I've had people who have found our brand in the UK. I think we had someone reach out from Spain and they're like, hey, can you ship your CBD? Our country just legalized hemp. And I'm like, I don't know what the European laws are around hemp. Like... So what is hemp like in Europe and what is the CBD market and then kind of same same conversation as European cannabis is that market more open in terms of types of products do you see hemp edibles hemp topicals things like that and kind of what's the sentiment for hemp in Europe
0: Well it's a mess to say it lightly Yeah the hemp and, and especially you know and then when we get into CBD it gets it gets very interesting here okay Because They've allowed the, many of the countries has allowed the production of hemp for quite a while, right? They had regulation in place dealing with the Department of Agriculture to be able to produce hemp. But EU also has, like, they have a hemp catalog, actually. So there's certified seeds, okay? There's an EU catalog of certified seeds for hemp production. And this catalog has been around for, I don't know how long, but a long time. Okay. And I think it's ever growing a little bit, but that's the reality. So that's been there and hemp production has been allowed. But most of these certified seeds from my understanding are more of your industrial, true industrial hemp. And some of them are flower producing, but most of them I think are limited in the flower production, but then there's a couple of them that do produce okay flowers, and you can get CBD percents. I think the highest ones, from what I understand, is about 12 to 14 percent, okay, is the highest these ones are bred to be able to receive, because many of the regulations still here, the THC limit is 0.2, like it's 0.2 in Portugal. Some of the other ones, it's 0.3. And so when you get those CBD numbers too high the THC goes over the limit and then you got another problem on your hands right because now you're technically growing something illegal. So it's confusing but it's normalizing again. And even Portugal they changed the regulations and then made some changes again this summer and like I'm a part of Canacasa which is a hemp association here in Portugal and and there's a lot of issues because there's just the farm that just a couple of weeks back got raided and got all of his plants chopped down, and he's growing CBD and it's industrial hemp and there's no THC, right? But there's I don't know, I don't know the full story, but you know there's some still some confusion there. Now, what's super interesting is then back in November of 2020 there was a big case, okay, because a company in France. And I believe they were dealing with vape pens, don't quote me on it, but I believe it was like vapes that they had, okay? Like, you know, CBD vapes. And they were importing them from the Czech Republic, but the Czech Republic was allowing them to be manufactured like legally, okay? But this company then got targeted, you know, by, there was a court case against them, French court case against them for basically selling narcotics. And it went all the way up to the EU courts, and the EU courts decided that CBD is not a narcotic because it is not psychoactive, and that if CBD is, or a product is manufactured in a member state legally, then it has the free movement of goods within the EU, okay? So that's kind of where we sit right now but this was like an EU court ruling. This wasn't a regulation or a law or, you know, it was an EU court ruling. So now after that ruling, it really started to open up because I think lawyers just said, Hey, EU said, it's not a narcotic. So you don't have to worry about that anymore. You're not trafficking narcotics and that it has the free movement of goods. So as long as it's being produced in somewhere, where it's being legally produced, then it can move freely and there's no problem. So for example, here in Portugal, in Lisbon, where I'm sitting right now, if you go to the city center, there's plenty of CBD shops, okay, that are selling flowers, vape pens, edibles, hash, pollen. It's like a little mini dispensary, right? But with only focus on CBD. So Very similar to, I'm sure, you know, your dispensary, but these ones are kind of small scale because you can tell they're they're very like touristy, you know, it's almost like they're trying to target kind of the tourists that are coming in with cannabis leaves and the marketing and branding is terrible and, but they're in good locations and it's like I said, and it's cannabis and there's flowers in there. So people are interested. They want to walk in, they want to see what's going on. They often end up, you know, they'll leave with something or whatever, right? If you went to the health regulators here in Portugal right now, if I went down Liz, center of Lisbon and talked to Infarmed, which is the health regulator, they would say CBD is a narcotic and it falls under our regulation and you need to have a medical cannabis and it needs to be registered and whatever. So it's actually caused a lot of confusion here in Portugal because they legalized medical cannabis now almost two and a half years ago now. And still there's not a CBD product on the market yet for a prescription because to get a product registered takes, uh, I was involved with the process at my previous employer and it took a couple years before we got that approval. So that's a concern, right? But then after this came in, then they started being a little bit more enforceful and then patients weren't able to find any CBD, right? And then until that ruling, now it's kind of opened up again, but- it's still not clear. And, and it's really not clear anywhere in Europe. And it's actually something that I'm focused on a little bit more right now myself, because, yeah, it's just kind of sad that people can't access it. And, and because it's not then regulated, a lot of the CBD products that you can get online or whatever, I mean, anyone could be making them, really. I could be making stuff right behind me in my kitchen right now. I could be bottling it, branding it nicely whatever and putting it on the market and no one would know what was in it, how it was made. And yeah, so it's so it's a mess. I mean, it's
1: heartbreaking to hear, but at the same time, you know, encouraging because it sounds like, I mean, just like everything you've shared, right? There's obviously a lot of setbacks that both markets really at a global level, the whole market has. There's a lot of progress being made, but at the same time there's a lot of Confusion that I think we're trying to fight through. And I can only hope that, you know, 10 years from now, we can look back at these challenging times and be really proud of the work that we're putting in individually to help bring cannabis to the forefront. I mean, we're kind of out of time to go into, you know, too much more detail. I'm curious too, just at a high level, it sounds like CBD is having a hard time. Minor cannabinoids, is there any? Delta-8 in the market or things like that, because those are definitely things I think as hemp has opened up here in the States, you're seeing more minor cannabinoids. And just to kind of round it out from a medical perspective, I do believe these different cannabinoids each have different properties. Yes, I believe they work really great together, but obviously different strains have different therapeutic benefits. One can argue that particular cannabinoid or combination of cannabinoids can be good for A versus another combination could be really good for B. And so I just think. All these things are in an effort to help us open up this conversation to normalize cannabis. So ultimately, consumers have access to this plant from a medicinal perspective, just like they would any other pharmaceutical drug, but with, in my opinion, much less side effects comparatively. So just kind of like to end on that note, do you see more cannabinoids opening up in Europe or is it still pretty uh, limited just based on the medical cannabis market and like this emerging hemp market?
0: it's still pretty limited right but you are starting to see some you'll hear about CBN and CBG and and actually some of these reasons are because of in the on the industrial hemp side of things like i'd mentioned before keeping that THC percentage below the threshold actually from what i've understood from growers and cultivators that it's easier with more like high CBG strains and then with a high CBD cultivar to keep that THC low So, yes, you're starting to see, but they're the more popular minor cannabinoids, right, that everyone's already quite familiar with back, or our community is quite familiar with. I often get ahead of myself, and I think to you, you make a great point, is to have these conversations and to be able to go into so much depth about the different things, and even into talking, you know, minor cannabinoids and other stuff like that, between you and I and between the community. Like I said, I think we all often forget to step back a little bit, right? And get outside of the community. And that's when I always kind of brings me back to earth a little bit because, you know, yeah, we get confused and, and yeah, it's, it's a lot of tough work that everyone is doing in this space. And, and a lot of us are also putting ourselves out there, right? I've had a strong corporate career my whole life and I made it not a big, but I made it switch into the cannabis industry, but I've owned it like I own any other career, corporate career that I've had but that means I'm very public about my association with cannabis consumption and working in the industry and everything. So, if this doesn't work out, you know, maybe that will that's going to hurt us down the road, but I'm I'm more than certain we're we're long past the point of no return. So, I think we'll continue to see it expand. But yeah, but you know I often have to take that time out and step away and have conversations with people who aren't knowledgeable or educated. And then right then I I can clearly ground myself and say, okay, you know, like, yes, we're confused and yes, it's challenging sometimes, but but we know a lot. And the more we keep going, we'll continue to learn and and we're going to help a lot, a lot of people. And that's just what I tell myself every day, you know, is that in the end, like I said, there's some challenges with adult use and some other things like that. But I truly believe in the end by giving people access to this plant, we have the ability to help a tremendous amount of people. End of story. Simple as that.
1: That literally blew my mind. Oh my God. Every freaking conversation on this podcast, I obviously, I just like, I'm a sponge. I soak up all this information. So I know that I walked away with a lot of interesting tidbits specifically for me I think it was really fascinating to learn that the European Union kind of operates as while there are different countries obviously as like a whole and so the whole idea of importing and exporting and obviously I touched on it in the podcast too you might come from a state that is really good at outdoor growing but that doesn't mean that you know two states over they're equally as good at outdoor growing and so when the market opens up if everybody has access to it. Is that really going to continue to be where the strengths are kind of falling as the industry starts to open up? I don't know. And so definitely we can't really project or really be specific about what is going to happen. But I do, again, think that these conversations are really good stimulators for us just to be critically thinking about what the hell is happening in the industry. And one, how can I be a part of it? I think that was a really big takeaway too from just getting to connect with Stephen. He's so involved in the Portugal and European cannabis legalization conversations, both in terms of advocating for medical cannabis, but also just advocating for adult use and recreational cannabis um, legalization as well. And you know, as a Texan, I I take that personally. I think that there's a lot of advocacy that has yet to be done. We as a state are not where I'd like to see us in terms of our cannabis laws. And I really do believe, you know, politics aside that we can each have a role to play in helping see cannabis be more adopted, whether it's at the state policy, legislative, or even just consumer level. And so if that's something that resonated with you too, I would just love to connect with you. Please feel free to reach out, follow up with me, find me on social media. Let's connect on LinkedIn. I really appreciate the conversations that stem from these episodes and just encourage you to you know reach out and and start that dialogue. So that's all I have for today's episode. Thank you so much for tuning in to another episode of the To Be Blunt podcast. I will be back next Monday with another brand new episode. Until then, talk to y'all later. Bye love this episode of To Be Blunt? Be sure to visit the slash to be blunt for more ways to connect. New episodes come out on Mondays. And for more behind the scenes, follow along on Instagram at theshadatarabi.